0: Welcome to the Immuno-Oncology, a Focus on Bladder Cancer webinar. My name is John, and I will be your operator for this morning's webinar. At this time, all participants are in listen-only mode. Please note that this webinar is being recorded. And now I want to turn the call over to Kelsey Holden. Kelsey, you may begin.
1: Welcome to AUA's Advancements in Urinary Cancer Immunotherapy Treatment Series, webinar number two, Immuno-Oncology, a Focus on Bladder Cancer. This is the second webinar in a four-part series. We strive to offer outstanding educational courses and greatly appreciate your evaluations and general feedback so that we are able to continuously improve our programs. Thank you to course director, doctor Costa Salis and faculty, Dr. Brant Inman and Dr. Matthew Malowski for joining us this morning. The AUA is accredited by the AC CME and designates this Internet Live Activity for a maximum of one AMA PRA Category 1 credits. Evaluations are very important to us. Course evaluations and CME credit will be administered electronically on AUA University immediately following the webinar. Please stay tuned for a keyword that will be provided at the end of the webinar. You will need this keyword to access the course evaluation, CME credit claim, and certificate. All persons in a position to control the content of an AUA educational activity are required to disclose any relevant financial relationships with any commercial interest. The AUA Disclosure Policy, Education Council Disclosures, and Faculty Disclosures can be found on AUA University. The AUA would like to thank the following companies for providing independent educational grants in support of this webinar. AstraZeneca, Bristol-Myers Squibb, Merck and Company, Inc. Coding advice given during presentations are the opinion of the presenters and may not have been vetted through the AUA for accuracy. Please verify accuracy prior to reporting on medical claims. Finally, We hope that you will actively participate this morning. Please interact with us and feel free to ask questions of the faculty at any point using the chat box on your screen. I will now turn the webinar over to course director, Dr. Wallace.
2: Hello everybody, welcome. Uh, I'm hoping this is going to be a very lively Tuesday morning. I'd like to go over the learning objectives for the second installment in our Advancement in Genitourinary Cancer Immunotherapy Treatment Series webinar uh, series. At the conclusion of this activity, participants will be able to restate the role of the immune system in cancer prevention and elimination, discuss the effects of immune system checkpoint inhibitors on the immunosuppressive activity of tumor cells, and finally, number three, review clinical investigations into the efficacy of immune system checkpoint inhibitors in the treatment of GU cancers. All right, with that being said, uh, just so you know, all of those questions will be elucidated uh, in these coming talks. I'm very pleased to introduce our speakers. Our first speaker will be Dr. Brant Inman. Brant is the Carrie Robertson Associate Professor and Vice Chief of Urology at the Duke Cancer Institute of Duke University. He received his medical degree from the University of Alberta in Canada. He completed his residency at Laval University in Canada and his urologic oncology fellowship at Mayo Clinic in Rochester. His area of clinical expertise is the surgical treatment of genitourinary cancers with a particular emphasis on bladder cancer. From a research standpoint, Dr. Enman is focused on novel therapies and diagnostic tests for genitourinary cancer with a special interest in immunotherapy and heat-targeted therapies. Our second speaker will be Dr. Matthew Malowski. Matt is a professor of medicine and urology and section chief of the urinary oncology service at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, Weinberger Comprehensive Cancer Center, as well as the co-director of the urologic oncology program. He joined UNC to lead, the, to lead the GU oncology research program with a focus on translational science and clinical trials for patients with urologic cancers. Prior to coming to UNC, Matt was an assistant member of the Genitourinary urinary oncology service at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center and an assistant professor of medicine at the Weill Medical College of Cornell University. Both of these individuals are thought leaders in their respective fields with regard to immunotherapy and bladder cancer. And despite the Tobacco Road rivalry, we are so pleased that they have collaborated and agreed to join us today. With that being said, Branch is gonna go ahead and get started.
3: Thank you, Kossas. Uh, welcome everybody. And as costas mentioned, there's q and A Q&A box for questions. If there's any questions, uh, please don't hesitate to ask. All right, got to advance the slide here. Hey guys, my slides aren't advancing. For some reason. All right, the objectives of uh, this talk are gonna be to classify immunotherapies. Um, In bladder cancer, there are a lot of different kinds of immunotherapies, and I'm gonna try and touch on some examples of each of these classes. We're going to discuss um, some of them in particular and what evidence we have for their efficacy and their mechanism of action, uh, and then outline some new trials and drugs. And hopefully you'll find it informative because you'll be reading about these new drugs in the next uh, years. So immunotherapies have many different types. Um, there are non-specific immune adjuvants, and we're going to talk about two examples of these today, BCG and another drug called imiquimod. Um, there are specific immune modulators, these are drugs that are targeting something very specific. A good example is a tezolizumab, um, or, which is a checkpoint inhibitor. There are cytokines, which are immune modulatory agents, uh, and I'm going to discuss uh, three different drugs in this uh, space. There are monoclonal antibody therapies, some of which are target uh, a specific molecule and deliver a specific payload, and I'm going to talk about one of those today. And then there's a bunch of different kinds of tumor vaccines, some of which are viruses, some of which are whole cell vaccines. And the viruses come in different forms. They can be oncolytic viruses, I'll describe what that is, versus antigenic viruses. We're not going to talk a whole lot about whole cell vaccines uh, today just because of time. Another way to look at these agents that is useful is shown in this uh, table. Some of the drugs are given intravesically, some of the drugs are given systemically, some are old, some are new, some have been tested and may have failed clinical trials or are somewhat troubled for one reason or another. For example, BCG uh, shown here under intravesical old but effective is sort of the standard agent that we use uh, as an immunotherapeutic agent for bladder cancer. Whereas most of the other agents in this table, some of you or most of you may not have heard of, and I'm going to explain what they are. But I think it's useful and important to start with BCG because that is uh, the the gold standard against which all of these drugs will ultimately be compared. BCG is a nonspecific immune adjuvant. And its main benefits given intravesically for non-muscle invasive bladder cancer are that it reduces recurrences by about 30% and it reduces progression events by about 25%, but really only when given with maintenance. The main risks of BCG are fever and irritative urinary symptoms and there are some severe side effects uh, including BCG cystitis, unusual immune phenomenon like Reiter's syndrome, and then, of course, the dreaded BCGosis, which is disseminated BCG infection. It appears that maintenance is the key to BCG efficacy, although uh, there are still some uh, people who do not administer this drug with maintenance. The main reason uh, that maintenance is effective is shown in this plot here. Uh, this is a summary of uh, the EORTC 30962 trial which was the largest stutter study ever done, in, to my knowledge, uh, with therapeutic intent for bladder cancer. And this study <clears throat> had about 1,300 patients. And what it did is it randomized patients with intermediate or high-risk non-muscle-invasive bladder cancer to get either full-dose versus one-third-dose BCG for either one year or three years. And what it showed, uh, And I'm going to try and get this pointer to work, yeah. What you see here is if you have intermediate-risk bladder cancer and you used one-third dose, you had to give it for three years in order to be, uh, and three years was superior to one year. On the other hand, if you had the same intermediate-risk cancer and you gave it full-dose BCG, there was no difference whether you gave it for a year or three years. So in my practice, I give intermediate-risk patients one year of full-dose BCG. In the high-risk group, um, full-dose for three years was better than full-dose for one year, so this is the treatment we give uh, in in high-risk disease, full-dose for three years. There is a difference in BCG strains, and strains can affect the efficacy, and here you see kind of the evolution of BCG. Initially, BCG started Um, in the early 1900s over here, and over time as strains evolved and went to different places in the world, we got very different mutations that developed in different types of BCG essentially. In North America, we tend to use TICE or Frappier BCG, sometimes cannot. Uh, But in Japan, for example, they use Tokyo strain, and these strains are very different. On the top right, you see a Kaplan-Meier plot of a randomized trial done in Europe showing that the Canach strain did better than the Tice strain in terms of recurrence-free survival. There was no difference in terms of progression. So it's probable that the type of BCG that we use will have some degree of difference on its efficacy. Now, here's a summary of how BCG works. BCG is given intravesically. And Once it's given intravesically, it binds to the urethelium by something called a fibronectin bridge. This fibronectin bridge is the result of a fibronectin adherence protein that binds fibronectin and an integrin on the surface of the bladder. The VCg is then internalized by endocytosis and it can result in direct cytotoxicity of the cancer cell, although this is thought to be a minor effect. The more important effect is the induction of immunity. An initial step here is the activation of toll-like receptors. I'm going to get to these a little bit later in the talk. And when toll-like receptors are activated, you get the production of cytokines. And the three big ones are IL-1, IL-6, and TNF-alpha. These are the classic inflammation cytokines. And when you get these cytokines being produced by the infected urethelium, neutrophils are recruited. Neutrophils that are recruited to the bladder then secrete chemokines and other things that go on to recruit macrophages. The macrophages make more chemokines and cytokines, which give more more neutrophils there, and this becomes a cycle. Also, IL-12 gets produced, and this recruits natural killer cells. Other factors are produced, which uh, recruit sorry, T cells, and there's two different varieties, Gamma-Delta T-cells and Alpha-Beta. Gamma-Delta is the minority, probably about 5%, and about 95% of the recruited T-cells appear to be Alpha-Beta T-cells. And these T-cells will then secrete cytokines, which result in the production of of CD8-positive T-cells, and these are the cytotoxic T-cells which then go on to destroy cancer. So note that they're adaptive antigen-specific immunity through T cells, and there's innate immunity which is non-antigen-specific through NK cells, macrophages, uh, neutrophils. One improvement that uh, people have tried to make is to reduce the toxicity of BCG, and a drug called MCNA, or uh, Microbacterial Cell Wall uh, with Nucleic Acid, was uh, tried in clinical trials. And what this is, this is a form of mycobacterium called mycobacterium flea, uh, which is non-pathogenic, found in the soil, plants, and water. And they essentially isolated the cell wall and 10% DNA. So this thing didn't have any potential to be infective like BCG does. And therefore, the risk of BCGosis and chronic cystitis was felt to be less. It was tried in clinical trials in phase uh, single arm phase three, And what you saw in that trial was a one-year disease-free survival of 27%. This went to the FDA a couple of years ago, and the FDA did not approve this drug and told the company they needed a randomized trial because it did not meet the bar for efficacy as a single-arm trial. Another treatment that people are familiar with is interferon. And presently, interferon is usually combined with BCG, usually in a second induction course. Interferon has multiple mechanisms of action, which I'll discuss in the next slide. On the left, lower Kaplan-Meier plot, you see a randomized trial between BCG and epirubicin combined with interferon. Epirubicin and interferon were inferior to BCG at preventing recurrences, and this goes to suggest that it's probably not the interferon alone that is effective, but the combination of interferon and BCG are important. And on the right, you see a phase 2 trial, a large phase 2 of BCG versus BCG and interferon in patients who've never had BCG before. And the curves are very similar. In fact, even though they look like they're separating towards the two-year time point, uh, these actually were not statistically significantly different. So there doesn't appear to be a huge role for BCG and interferon presently, perhaps with the exception um, of the second induction course if someone failed the first six-week induction. Another new way that interferon is being given is with a drug called instiladrin, and this just recently finished accruing on a phase three single arm trial. Instiladrin is an adenovirus, and this adenovirus is combined with an excipient called syn 3 Excipients are things that are instilled in the bladder to help make the virus infect better in the bladder. You're going to see a couple of other examples of this during the talk. What happens with instiladrin is this adenovirus Infects uh, the the urothelium and causes the urothelium to make interferon. And in fact, you can detect interferon in the urine for about five to ten days after this viral treatment, which suggests that the prolongation of efficacy is is good. The mechanism of action is multifold. First, the virus itself can kill the cell because of uh, viral related uh, cell kill. You'll see a couple of examples coming up of that. It can also cause uh, cell kill by ER stress, and that's because it's causing so much interferon production uh, that it overwhelms the system and depletes uh, metabolites within the cancer cell and the cancer cell dies. And then, of course, there's the bystander effect where the interferon goes on to activate the immune system, much like BCG. One thing that you need to understand is the role of toll-like receptors, which I mentioned previously when we discussed how BCG works. Toll-like receptors are sensors that exist within cells and they're very heavily evolutionarily uh, conserved. Here you can see uh, an evolutionary dendrogram from multiple different species, opossums, chickens, mice, fish. Most species have these sensors and they're basically sensors for infection. BCG binds to Toll-like receptors 2 and 4 and stimulates these. Flagellin, DNA, single-stranded and double-stranded, lipopeptides, these are all stimulants. And one class of drugs that's important that stimulates toll-like receptors is the uh, imidazoquinolones. Now, imidazoquinolones are characterized by imiquimod. Imiquamod is known to most urologists because we use it to treat penile cancer and precancerous penile lesions. It's a toll-like receptor 7 agonist. And a new form of amicumumab is being tested in clinical trials for bladder cancer as a liquid instead of a cream. And it's instilled in the bladder. It seems to be very well tolerated. And in Phase two clinical trial for patients with carcinoma in situ, small trial, only 12 patients, uh, there were two complete responses. So at least in the very uh, aggressive CIS patients, it doesn't appear to be terrifically um, active, but this drug could be combined, for example, with other agents. Viral therapies um, are being developed at a very high rate. One example of an oncolytic adenovirus is the Colgenesis product, CG0070. And this is a conditionally replicative virus, which means that it only replicates in certain types of cells. And in the case of this drug, it only replicates in cells that have lost RB or retinoblastoma protein, something that's very characteristic of bladder cancer. And when it's allowed to reproduce, it makes GMCSF, which is a, a, a stimulating factor. The way that it's given is the bladder is washed out with saline, then a detergent is applied. This is very similar to the Sin 3 that you see within Enciladrin, and then the virus is administered. The detergent's goal is to make the urothelium more porous and uh, more receptive to viral infection. And if you look over here at step one, the virus would attach to the urothelial cell, either the cancer cell or uh, the normal urothelium. And in a cancer cell, when retinoblastoma protein is lost, it will then start to reproduce. And as that virus reproduces, it makes GMCSF, which has immunological side effects, and cytok- results in recruitment of cells to the area, immune cells like macrophages and monocytes um, and neutrophils. And this results in cytokine production but also the virus will self-assemble within the cancer cell, and when enough of these viral particles are there, basically the cancer cell gets overwhelmed, the cancer cell dies, releasing more particles into the area, which can then go and uh, affect and infect other cancer cells. This is a classic sort of prototype for an oncolytic virus. And over here on the left, you can see uh, in in preliminary clinical trials phase two, um, with only 45 patients, the overall response rate was very good at 50%. This is one of the better response rates that we've seen in this type of population. Another drug that's been developed for intravesical use is ALT-H03. And the way this works is as an IL-15 super agonist. So what you have here is IL-15, here the shown is this green uh, ball, that's bound to the IL-15 receptor, and that is bound to a an FC uh, receptor, which is part of an antibody. And when this is administered, what happens is it binds to FC receptors on monocytes, dendritic cells, macrophages. It's internalized and then given to T cells and in natural killer cells to activate them. And IL, so IL-15 is a very potent activator of T cells and NK cells. And the hope here is that this will result in better uh, immune recruitment to the bladder. This drug might be used alone or in combination with other immunotherapies. Try and pronounce this drug name, very difficult. Uh, I just call it BC819 because nobody can pronounce this. But this is a a drug that's coming onto phase three trial presently. The way that this works is it's a plasmid uh, that is based off the H19 oncofetal RNA gene. This is a very interesting gene, which codes for a long non-coding RNA, which is uh, an unusual set of uh, nucleic acids present in many cells and has regulatory roles. It turns out that about 85% of bladder cancers express this, but normal cells do not. So, the way this virus works is if you're in a, if it's in a, or it's not actually a virus, it's a plasmid, if this plasmid is in a cell that's making H19, well then this plasmid will be, will be um, produced and it goes through the H19 regulatory pathway and codes for diphtheria toxin A. So you give this intravesically, it infects or gets inside of the urothelium. If it's a cancer cell, the cancer cell 85% of the time will have H19. That will lead to diphtheria toxin production which will kill the cancer cell and result in other immune cells coming in. So it's got two mechanisms of action. Another viral therapy is virus A21, known as the CAVATAC vaccine. Uh, can be injected directly into the tumor or around the tumor or even given intravesically with an excipient and it infects the cancer cell um, by binding to uh, a protein called ICAM1, which is a cell adhesion molecule. The virus gets inside the cancer cell, starts replicating, the cancer cell dies, more virus goes to other cancer cells and kills other cancer cells in the vicinity. Also, as the cancer cells rupture, antigens are released and immune activity happens. This drug is being tried presently in combination with mitomycin C in clinical trials. So a combination of chemotherapy and immune therapy. Opertuzumab monotox is an interesting drug, which is an antibody drug conjugate. And the way this drug works is it's got a portion that binds to something called EPCAMP. And Epcam is upregulated on bladder cancer cells. And when it binds to Epcam, it delivers its payload. here, Pseudomonas exotoxin A. So we've now seen a diphtheria toxin. Here we have a Pseudomonas toxin. And in BCG unresponsive, Carcinoma sites. You, 44% of patients saw complete response. This is a high level of complete response, but only 16% of patients had a durable complete response. So we'll have to wait for further phase three trials to see how effective this drug ultimately proves to be. Not all vaccines, though, are intravesical, and the mage A3 vaccine is an example of one that's being tested as a systemic vaccine. MAGE A3 is a cancer testis antigen. These are a group of antigens, and there's many of them, that are normally only expressed in male germ cells. But for some reason, cancers acquire the ability to express this, and in bladder cancer, about 40% of non-invasive tumors and 60% of muscle-invasive tumors express MAGE A3. And the idea here is you can give this drug intramuscularly every three weeks for a five installations, it's usually given with a toll-like receptor agonist to kind of get things revved up. Uh, remember BCG is a toll-like receptor agonist and so is a imiquimod. So you give something in addition to this to get immune cells to the area and then when the T cells see this antigen, uh, they, they become uh, activated and if you give this in combination with BCG in the bladder which is another toll-like receptor agonist, the, the thinking is maybe these this vaccine will help identify uh, cancer cells and result in better immunity. And there's a lot of functions that have been um, given to this MAGE A3 thing, such as sustaining cellular growth, genomic instability, tissue invasion, evading apoptosis, and inducing angiogenesis. These are examples of functions that different cancer testis antigens might have. The last vaccine I'm going to talk about is something called PANVAC. PANVAC interesting, it's, you may have heard of PROSVAC. Well, PANVAC is very similar to PROSVAC. Both of these vaccines are based on something called the Tricom platform, which is uh, this core of things here, V71, LFA3, and ICAM-1. LFA, these are all co-stimulatory molecules which, which help um, keep a T cell and an antigen presenting cell stuck together. b 71 binds to the CD28 receptor, LFA3, binds to CD2, and ICAM-RUN binds to another cell adhesion molecule. And the way that these are given is this vaccine has these co-simulatory molecules coupled with a tumor antigen. In the case of prostate cancer, this is PSA or PSMA. Um, In the case of bladder cancer, they're trying it with CEA and a mucin called MUC1. The first vaccination is a vaccinia virus, that's called the prime. And The BOOST uh, vaccines are Foulpox virus and this is currently being tested in combination with BCG. So another systemic uh, agent. The last thing I'm going to talk about and really only briefly because Matt is going to talk about this in detail is that immune checkpoint inhibitors are being tested in clinical trial for non-invasive bladder cancer. And There's five of these drugs that are uh, approved in bladder cancer in various stages Um, and Currently, atezolizumab um, and pembrolizumab are being t- are being tested in larger trials, and most of the other drugs are being tested on smaller trials in various combinations and forms. So we'll look forward to seeing results of these drugs, which are systemic drugs with much more systemic side effects for non-muscle invasive bladder cancer. Thank you.
2: Thank you, Brent. That was very extensive. Um, I'm I'm curious. You know, looking at the the oncolytic adenoviruses and all the vaccines that you mentioned as well as the checkpoint inhibitors, which of these do you think really has the most potential to to supplant BCG or is anything really gonna supplant BCG? Well, right now, most of
3: these are being used in patients that have failed BCG. Um, So we're not really at the point right now with other immune therapies to be comparing them to BCG. Once they come on in second line after BCG fails, I suspect that most of these will be used in, uh, in trials comparing to BCG.
2: Great. Okay. Well, thank you very much. Uh, with that being said, we are going to move on. Uh, our next speaker is
0: uh, Dr. Matthew
2: Malowski, who is going to speak on muscle invasive disease.
0: So thanks uh, very much, Dr. Lalas and the AUA for the invitation to participate. And thanks to Dr. Inman for providing really an excellent overview of a historical perspective of immunotherapy and the management of patients with bladder cancer and touching on some very important uh, novel vaccine and other approaches. So I'm going to focus uh, today on muscle invasive uh, bladder cancer. And specifically, it's important to note that here in this clinical disease states model, The pendulum sways away from death from other causes toward death from disease uh, when one develops muscle-invasive bladder cancer and, of course, uh, in those patients with metastatic disease. So neoadjuvant uh, chemotherapy uh, represents a standard of care in the management of patients with uh, muscle-invasive bladder cancer. Uh, This is the largest uh, trial uh, to date. Uh, This is the uh, B80630894 MRC EORTC study uh, which looked at neoadjuvant chemotherapy with cisplatin, methotrexate, and femblastine versus cystectomy and or radiotherapy alone in patients with muscle-invasive urothelial carcinoma of the bladder. So this was close to uh, 1,000 patients. And here uh, the hazard ratio was 0.84 with an improvement in 10-year overall survival at a follow-up of eight years of uh, 6%. In addition to the MRCEORTC study, we have additional level one evidence. Uh, this is a US uh, study uh, through the intergroup mechanism, specifically the intergroup 80 trial. Uh, this is neoadjuvant MVAC, uh, which is methotrexate, and blastine, adriamycin, and cisplatin. Uh, compared to radical cystectomy alone, 317 patients. And here, once again, an improvement in survival. Here, a median overall survival of 77 versus 46 months in those patients who underwent cystectomy alone. When one looks at these studies and specifically looks at the pathologic response rate, here in the intergroup 80 trial, what one can see is that there was a higher PT0 rate associated with the use of neoadjuvant chemotherapy followed by radical cystectomy as compared to cystectomy alone here at 38% versus 15%. And this uh, high uh, pathologic response rate is important because in those patients who achieve a PT0, the five-year survival outcome in this particular study was 85% and this is consistent with other analyses as well. In addition to the level 1 evidence generated uh, from these two randomized phase 3 clinical trials, uh, there is also a robust meta-analysis. This is over 3,000 patients uh, treated on 11 randomized clinical trials of cisplatin-based combination chemotherapy. Uh, And here, uh, the hazard ratio uh, is in favor of those patients receiving neoadjuvant cisplatin-based chemotherapy uh, with a 14% proportional reduction in the risk of death associated again with the use of cisplatin-based combination chemotherapy in this disease. And so uh, based on uh, the level of evidence, uh, this is the uh, endorsement uh, of the European Association of Urology guideline uh, by the American Society of Clinical Oncology. And uh, number two states that neoadjuvant chemotherapy is recommended for T2 through T4A clinical uh, node negative bladder cancer and should always be a cisplatin-based combination therapy. Going back to the issue of pathologic downstaging, uh, this slide is consistent uh, with what I showed in the 80 Phase three randomized trial, looking at the association of pathologic downstaging downstaging with high cure rates. Uh, Here, uh, looking at the prospective experiences as well as several retrospective experiences, using different chemotherapy regimens, including conventional MVAC, dose-dense MVAC, or a commonly used regimen of gemcitabine and cisplatin. Uh, Here, one can see that the pathologic uh, complete responses, or PT0 rates, uh, range between 20 to upwards of 38%. And when one looks at those patients who have less than muscle-invasive disease at the time of cystectomy, uh, here you can see rates as high as 53%, If one looks at survival outcomes uh, in patients who have less than uh, PT2, so here PTA, uh, CIS, or PT1 or PT0, uh, as compared to those patients with persistent muscle invasive disease or more, uh, they have uh, really excellent survival outcomes. Uh, This is a Kaplan-Meier curve looking at the uh, five-year overall survival outcomes for patients with less than PT2 uh, here at 90%. Uh, as compared to those who have persistent muscle-invasive disease or more at the time of radical cystectomy uh, with a 37% uh, five-year survival outcome. So this is good news, uh, but uh, as always, uh, we can certainly and do want to do better. Uh, And so here, 20 to 40% or so of patients achieve a pathologic response Uh, And I think uh, a very important question, again, is uh, can we do better uh, and how can we do better uh, with uh, uh, other therapies or better ways to predict those patients who are most likely to respond uh, to conventional cisplatin-based chemotherapy. And so this is an experience uh, that uh, came out of a Phase two clinical trial looking at a dose-dense formulation of gemcitabine and cisplatin chemotherapy in the neoadjuvant setting, Uh, and this was uh, done by Dr. Gopai at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, and uh, we were fortunate to be able to participate at UNC along with a group at NYU, Uh, and here in the context of this Phase two trial, uh, Dr. Ayer and others looked at the correlation of DNA damage response gene alterations uh, with response to neoadjuvant dose-dense gemcitabine and cisplatin in urothelial cancer. And here, uh, 9 patients, 26%, harbored deleterious DDR alterations. Uh, there was, uh, as you can see, uh, the most common rcc 2 alterations uh, involved in nucleotide, nucleotide excision repair. And these uh, deleterious DDR gene alterations were, in fact, associated with PT0, PTIS response. Uh, and here, with excellent uh, predictive value specificity of 92% and a positive predictive value close to 90%. And in addition, when one looks at the recurrence-free survival, uh, there was an improvement in recurrence-free survival in those patients with deleterious DDR alterations as, those, uh, as compared to those uh, who uh, were without those alterations or, or wild type. And so based on this data, uh, the Alliance and uh, NTTN is uh, launching uh, or has launched a clinical trial. Uh, this is a prospective trial of neoadjuvant dose-dense gemcitabine and cisplatin alone uh, in patients with muscle-invasive bladder cancer harboring deleterious DNA damage response uh, alterations. And so here, uh, patients um, with um, clinical uh, clinical uh, T2, T4A, uh, N0 urethelial carcinoma of the bladder uh, begin dose-dense uh, gemcitabine and cisplatin. Uh, The TURBT tissue is submitted for targeted sequencing. And those patients with deleterious DDR gene alterations who achieve a clinical response on cystoscopic uh, biopsy, negative EUA, negative cytology, go on a surveillance uh, program. Uh, Those patients who do not go on to radical cystectomy. And patients who are DDR gene wild type uh, follow the paradigm of radical cystectomy post uh, neoadjuvant chemotherapy. And here uh, primary endpoints looking at two-year relapse free survival as well as the clinical response rate that is clinical uh, TZ or TIS on post-chemotherapy to RBT. So we're all aware of trimodality bladder preservation approaches. Uh, this represents uh, a, uh, another potential uh, way to consider bladder preservation that is selecting those patients who are most likely to respond to, in this case, is platinum based combination chemotherapy based on DDR alterations and following those patients uh, on surveillance if they achieve uh, a complete response on clinical evaluation. So other issues that surround the use of cisplatin-based combination chemotherapy uh, include uh, the issue of cisplatin ineligibility. Uh, And here are the consensus criteria that were developed for cisplatin uh, ineligibility or those unfit for cisplatin-based chemotherapy. Uh, These include uh, performance status, Uh, the uh, creatinine clearance due to the nephrotoxic effects of cisplatin, uh, issues related to hearing loss, peripheral neuropathy, and also uh, heart failure. And, of course, the uh, issue here is that approximately 40 to 50 percent of patients are uh, cisplatin-ineligible. So in patients who are ineligible for cisplatin-based chemotherapy, uh, there's not a role for non-cisplatin-based combination chemotherapy regimens. Uh, For example, carboplatin, And so, these patients simply go on uh, to a radical cystectomy. So, with this in mind, what novel therapies are are currently out there and being investigated in the context of muscle-invasive disease. And so, Dr. Inman uh, finished with a slide that looked much like this slide, uh, reviewing the FDA-approved immune checkpoint inhibitors in urothelial cancer. So, here, uh, five immune checkpoint inhibitors uh, targeting uh, either the ligand PD-L1 or PD-1 administered typically every two or every three weeks, depending on the agent. Uh, And uh, all of these are approved in patients who have progressed after platinum-based chemotherapy, and two of these are approved uh, in patients who uh, are not uh, eligible for cisplatin-based chemotherapy uh, here uh, based on accelerated approval for tezolizumab and uh, pembrolizumab. Uh, With a recent uh, FDA uh, and uh, European, Uh, Warning uh, based on two randomized phase three clinical trials uh, that we now need to incorporate PD-L1 staining uh, because it appears as though those patients who are the ones who benefit uh, from these agents in the first line setting have uh, high PD-L1 expression. So this is the level one evidence uh, based on the KEYNOTE forty five study looking at pembrolizumab versus chemotherapy in the post platinum metastatic UC space. Uh, here, uh, metastatic patients randomized to pembrolizumab versus investigator's choice of chemotherapy. Uh, and the primary endpoint was overall survival as well as PFS in the overall and also in a pd one selected population. And I'm just going to show you here the Kaplan-Meier curve uh, demonstrating the overall uh, survival benefit associated with the use of uh, here uh, pembrolizumab. Uh, as compared to um, standard conventional chemotherapy in patients who progress after platinum-based chemotherapy. And this is really uh, the use of immune checkpoint uh, inhibitors transformed the landscape for the management of patients with advanced erythelial carcinoma after really very little progress uh, over the course of approximately three decades. So on the heels of this uh, data came two very exciting presentations uh, Both were delivered at the American Society of Clinical Oncology uh, annual meeting in 2018. Uh, The first was by Dr. Tom Powles, the Abacus study investigating the safety and efficacy of neoadjuvant etezolizumab in muscle-invasive bladder cancer. Uh, So here, uh, abacus uh, had a design such that patients received uh, two uh, doses of etezolizumab at three-week intervals uh, after a transurethral resection and then underwent cystectomy. Uh, There was also an imaging component in this study. Uh, Again, uh, the cisplatin, um, similar population for neoadjuvant chemotherapy, T2 through T4AN0 disease. Uh, These patients were required to have residual disease post-TURPT based on the fact that there is a uh, PT0 rate associated with TURPT alone. And these patients in this particular study were not fit for or rejected cisplatin-based chemotherapy with a co-primary endpoint of a PCR greater than 20% and an increase in CD8 count. This is the uh, treatment summary, uh, and here uh, ultimately 68 were accessible for the primary efficacy endpoint. The patient characteristics are much like those uh, for muscle-invasive bladder cancer patients. Here in this particular trial, the majority uh, folks had muscle-invasive uh, disease, that is T2 disease, Uh, Here, about 20% of patients with T3 disease. Adverse events were what we expect with immune checkpoint blockade, uh, generally quite well-tolerated. There can, of course, be immune-related adverse events uh, associated, uh, and there was one treatment-related death uh, on cycle 2 due to dyspnea. This is the data with respect to complete responses, and uh, very uh, interesting uh, data, again, relatively small numbers, but still quite promising. Here, uh, 29% uh, pathologic response rate in all comers. Uh, if one looks at the pdl one positive selected population, 40%, and this is the PCR according to T stage at baseline, 35% for T2, 15 for T3, 4. Dr. Powers and colleagues looked at changes to PD-L1 and CD-8 expression with therapy and noted upregulation of PD-L1 expression uh, in the pretreatment TURBT versus cystectomy and also noted uh, uh, increase in uh, CD-8 infiltration in these tumors, which is consistent with uh, the mechanism by which immune checkpoint inhibitors work by stimulating uh, the immune response. So in addition to the Abacus study, uh, Dr. Niki uh, presented the... Uh, preoperative pembrolizumab, a pure zero one study, uh, similar but uh, somewhat different. Uh, so this study looked at patients who were actually fit and planned for cystectomy uh, and uh, had residual uh, disease uh, after TURB. Uh, they received three uh, cycles of weekly, uh, three, uh, three weekly cycles of pembrolizumab. Uh, and here the primary endpoint was again, the pathologic response rate and the intent to treat population. Here looking at the characteristics, uh, more patients with uh, T3 disease and all of these patients uh, were cisplatin eligible. So this is different than the Avicus study with respect to the patient population. Treatment related adverse events, you could see very little in the way of grade 3-4 events, uh, only two, uh, and there did not appear to be uh, any surgical complications uh, that were outside of those that would be anticipated. Uh, for patients undergoing cystectomy, and no delay in the time to cystectomy in either study. And here, again, promising a pathologic response rate of close to 40%, and a pathologic downstating to PT, to less than PT2 in 51% of patients. They did some biomarker analysis in this study. Uh, that I won't go into all of it, but they looked specifically at uh, DDR alterations as well as specific genomic alterations, including RB1, as well as a pd one combined positive score in the association with pathologic response. And you can see here that uh, using sort of a multi-pronged biomarker type approach uh, that they were able to predict uh, those that would achieve a pathologic response. Uh, these are obviously small numbers, uh, but I think it speaks to uh, the importance of looking for predictive biomarkers uh, as well as the complexity in looking at predictive biomarkers, and the likelihood is that we're going to need to include uh, potentially several different biomarkers to ultimately come up with one that has the test characteristics that are sufficient to be able to use clinically in our patients. So what lessons can we learn from other diseases? Uh, I think urothelial carcinoma is not alone. Uh, there have been interesting uh demonstrations of pathologic response in non-small cell lung cancer. Uh, This is a New England Journal of Medicine paper looking at neoadjuvant PD-1 blockade uh, with nebulimab and resectable lung cancer. Uh, Here, demonstrating a pathologic response in 45% of resected tumors. Uh, This was uh, associated with uh, higher tumor mutational burden, uh, and they also saw treatment-induced expansive mutation associated neoantigen-specific T-cell clones in the peripheral blood. And in addition to this, uh, the non-small cell lung cancer literature has taught us that combination chemotherapy with immune checkpoint blockade appears to offer benefit. Uh, uh, and here, uh, again, a survival benefit associated with the use of uh, this combination type of approach. And this is being investigated very actively in urothelial cancer. There are a number of clinical trials that are actively uh, looking at uh, the pd one pdl one inhibitors uh, in muscle invasive disease. Uh, alone or as well as in combination approaches. Uh, We uh, are fortunate to be participating uh, in a study out of UNC uh, with collaborating actually with Dr. Inman and uh, his colleagues at Duke looking at pembrolizumab in combination with gemcitabine and cisplatin incorporating a number of important uh, immunologic uh, correlative uh, to be able to understand mechanism. Uh, And as you can see, there's a number of uh, studies uh, that are going on with other novel agents targeting CD137 to try to augment uh, the CTL response, as well as uh, monotherapy approaches with uh, immune checkpoint blockade. And so with that, uh, I'll end. Thank you very much. Wonderful. Uh,
2: Thank you, Matt. Just uh, one question for you. Uh, This kind of goes along with the podcast you you presented uh, earlier. Uh, this month, um, the importance of biomarkers, uh, and you speak to it very nicely in your in your presentation as well. Uh, do you, are you routinely using biomarkers yourself to predict patients who are going to respond to these uh, immunotherapies?
0: Unfortunately, I don't think we're there yet uh, in terms of being able to select uh, a single predictive biomarker. Um, obviously, there's data as I alluded to related to PD-L1 expression uh, as an important uh, approach to selecting those patients in the first-line setting who are just cisplatin ineligible. Um, we do send off uh, next-generation sequencing with information related to tumor mutational load, um, MSI status, and so we certainly look at that information, um, but I would say that um, we're still not at a point where we're actually using that information to select patients who um, who are going to receive these agents, Um, you know, and uh, again, we need to, of course, also try to understand uh, mechanisms of resistance so that we're not treating patients unnecessarily uh, with what are not, uh, you know, agents that don't have any toxicity, they do when they have and they can be quite significant, and also they're associated with substantial cost implications. So another,
2: yes, Brent?
3: I like to make a point on that. I, I agree with what Matt was saying, and I would say that you know, that right now the biomarkers, when you look at it, the the, the problem is is that even the patients who are PD L one negative, have better outcomes with checkpoint inhibitors than they do with second line chemo or third line chemo drugs. Very frequently, so it's it. I agree with Matt. It's very challenging to to use these to to make. Treatment decisions, because even the ones that are negative do well, or not well, but at least better than the than than the other
2: alternatives right now. It's very good point. Thank you. Uh, there's a question from the audience asking, I think, in reference to your last slide, Matt. Uh, when do we expect these trials uh, to be mature enough
0: that we're going to see some results? So I think the um, you know the 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 analyses that were presented at ASCO were both formally speaking sort of interim analyses of those two studies. Um, I think that uh, over the course of this year, we're going to see a lot of report out on, um, on, on these studies, um, providing additional information. Um, it is only now, however, that uh, we're really seeing the launch of large sort of pharmaceutical efforts, um, particularly in the muscle invasive space. Uh, so that may be a little bit longer, but I think we're going to continue to see uh, important suggestions of activity over the course of, of, of this year presented uh, uh, at, uh, at our upcoming meetings, uh, including uh, uh, the uh, GU uh, Symposium as well as um, uh, the American Society of Clinical Oncology meeting and I'm sure data at the AUA as well. And uh, one other question, going back
2: to you, Brant, I, I was fascinated with the combination of the toll-like receptor agents in addition to other immunotherapy and immuno, uh, immunotherapy agents. Um, can you speak about that a little bit more because it sounds like there's a, there's a lot going on there.
3: Yeah, uh, the toll-like receptor agonists are kind of nonspecific um, things that recruit the immune system to wherever they're administered. So typically in our case here, they'd be intravesical like BCG, like imiquimod. So you get the immune system there. Then the next question is: Can you, can, once the, the the innate immune system is there, the inflammation is there, can you fine tune the adaptive response with with some other form of of more antigen specific uh, vaccine? And that's where, for example, the MAJ3 vaccine would come along, or something similar to that. Um, the panvac would be another example of that, a more antigen targeted therapy. So I think we may be entering a realm where immunotherapies are going to be um, a combination of non-specific things and specific things to the
2: tumor. So the checkpoint inhibitors would be the more specific group. Would you ever add those to a toll toll-like receptor then? It's, well, uh... checkpoint inhibitors are also
3: nonspecific. They're not targeted against any particular tumor type, for example. they're they're they bind to they're, they're less broad in a sense as in terms of their mechanism of action than than the, the toll-like receptor agonists are, but they still result in just generalized inflammation, right? Um, the difference here is the antigen part, looking for a specific antigen that's bladder cancer related, uh, MAGE A3, MUC1, uh, CEA are all tumor-associated antigens, whereas the checkpoint inhibitor doesn't care what the antigen is, it's, it's just trying to get the T cell activated.
2: Awesome. Great, well thank you again, you guys. Uh, That was uh, really, really a a, a nice summary of of, uh, where we are at this point with both non-muscle and muscle-invasive bladder cancer. Oh yeah, so upcoming live webinars in the 2018 series. Uh, Webinar number three uh, will be on October 25th. It is a focus on kidney cancer. Number four will be on November 14th. Both of these from 7 to 8 p.m. will be a focus on prostate cancer. And Breaking Down Barriers Biomarkers, uh, which was uh, Dr. Malowski's podcast, is now free by visiting the auanet.org backslash GU website.
0: And thank you, ladies and gentlemen. This concludes this morning's webinar. Thank you for participating, and you may not disconnect. Speakers stand by for your
2: post-conference.